Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. So our scripture reference for this afternoon is going to be Matthew 2, 1 through 12, but just have a little fun first, a little lighthearted, a little casual tonight. Um, So my question is, I have a few pictures, and you can tell me what you think this is about Christmas. So the first one is, well, what is Christmas about? Is it this? That's a hand, by the way, (laughs) buried under the presents. Okay, what about this? That's Pastor Joe's nightmare. (laughs) I see that, I get anxiety, just saying. (laughs) What about this? I have a term for that, light pollution. (laughs) I apologize if your home looks like that. (laughs) But uh, really, you know, this is kind of what Christmas has become. But if we don't understand Jesus Christ and what he did, then it really becomes a vain tradition. The first one, I I look at the presence and the person buried in it. Christmas can become, and it shouldn't be, it could become about self. It could become about high expectations. The second picture of the mall parking lot, uh, regardless of my own fears and anxieties, (laughs) to me, I look at that as the, the stress of the holidays, right? The stress and... Uh, something that's supposed to bring peace and joy, bringing things that really wasn't meant to bring. And the third one, uh, the, I guess you could say gaudy Christmas decorations, I look at that as a, a tradition, but an empty tradition if we don't know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So to put this into perspective, this is really what Christmas is about. That's it right there. John three sixteen. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, speaking of himself, that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. There is no salvation outside of Christ. You know, when we look at people have different opinions and at this time of the year the attacks come on our faith, usually some people on the media or, you know, they kind of try to bring up new things that really don't pan out. But one of the, you know, aspersions that are cast is that it's a, it's a nice, it's a quaint fairy tale. Actually, to believe on Christ is something simple, but it's something deep at the same time. There is God's message and his continuity and his contiguity of thought traverses the Old Testament and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, people ask the question, even Christians, why did Jesus cut his life short and go on this cross and bleed to death? Why did that happen? Well, if you look at the book of Hebrews, the, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews refers back to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, which basically says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So that continuity carries through in the New Testament, and in Hebrews it tells us that Without the shed blood, there is no remission of sins. Something very interesting, if you read the Gospels, is that Jesus constantly told his followers, I must go to the cross. 
And even they were learned to some extent into the, the Scripture in the Old Testament, but they didn't want to see the truth, the reality of what Christ had to do to save us from our sins. If you look at image five, the babe in the manger, you know, Jesus came to the world fully God and fully man. And there's a legal aspect to that as well. Again, I get into the depth, but I also get into the simplicity of the gospel. Through the line of Adam came the curse of sin. So in order to reverse it, God had to come through that line of the human race to reverse that curse of sin so that we could have eternal life. Well, even a lot of Christians don't know the intricacies of why Jesus had to do what he did. If we don't know the truth of the love of Christ, then every year we worship a vain tradition. Now, I'm going to say something that I've been doing this for 15 years, and I always try to you know, put a little different nuance based on different scriptures of the Christmas message. But I know that every year, and sometimes I kid around, I talk about the Christmas and Easter crowd, but we also have what I would call forced guests. Forced guests. <laughs> now, maybe some of you, and this happens every year, come because you're being polite. Maybe you're not buying the whole Christianity thing, the whole Jesus thing. Maybe you do it because you really love somebody who asked you to come. Maybe they cajoled you. Maybe they bribed you. I don't know. There could be a whole host of reasons why some of you might be here. But some of you might even be turned off by things that you see as religious hypocrisy. So if that's you, I've never said this before in 15 years. Uh, if this is something that God put on my heart, consider yourself that God is using me or this church or the scripture to reach you. And I'll tell you this, that in my teens and my early 20s, I felt that religious was, religion was useless. And I kind of went my own way. And then I started searching. But I didn't find religion. I found Christ. And that was the truth that I found. I, I grabbed all the holy books I could find. I got a bunch of them still in my library. And I was on a quest to find the truth. But I found Jesus. I didn't find religion. So don't let false representatives of God keep you from God. Because I got news for you. He doesn't like false representation either. If the person is a hypocrite and they really are not for God... And maybe they might not even be going to heaven. Don't know that. Only God knows that. Why would you want to be in the same place as them for eternity? So don't let religious hypocrisy. That's interesting because last Sunday I actually taught a message titled Religious Hypocrisy. I believe I'm reaching at least somebody here this, this, e this evening. The message is titled No Wrapping Paper Needed. Did you know that every Christmas season, pastors clamor and stress out about how to make the Christmas message different, to make it more interesting, to make it relevant to, rel to strangers and relatives, to keep Christmas and Easter guests coming more consistently. I kind of look at that, if you want to use metaphors here, as re-gifting. Some of you are guilty of it. I'm not going to say if I am or not. But, you know, you take a, gi a gift and you're not really into it. You rewrap it and give it to somebody else. It's still got this, you know, the, the plastic wrap on it. It's all good, right? We don't need to do that with the Christmas message. It stands on its own. It's that good. Well, some people feel like they need to redress up the Christmas story 
And if that's the case, we're either telling the story wrong or we have the wrong story. Because truly, the love of God to send his son to come down on the earth, to die for our sins, that truly is the greatest story ever told. I'll leave you with one more thing, and then we'll jump into the, uh, the account of the wise men, is how much trouble did God go through to reach us? Well, if you never heard the term prophecy, prophecy is where God tells something. Sometimes he tells it. It's forthtelling. He says this is this is what's going on um, in, his old, in, the, in the prophets. Sometimes he said, well, this is what's going to happen in 100 years, 300 years, 1,000 years. And he, he kind of litters uh, like a beautiful trail of his prophecies throughout human history. Then they come to pass. And that's one of the ways that God uses to show who he is, to reveal himself is through prophecy. So there were well over 300 prophecies that Christ fulfilled. So before the babe in the manger, uh, some of these prophecies Christ filled at the first century that were 300 years old, the oldest ones over 1,000 years old, which is pretty impressive. What's remarkable about that is, and I'm, I'm going to get to the, the scripture part of it, which is going to be great, but the atheist, the archaeologist, the paleographist, the person who does nothing but researches manuscripts, who doesn't buy into the message of Christ. They all agree that the Septuagint, which is older than the Masoretic text, older than the Dead Sea Scrolls, 3rd century B.C. Uh, text, that even atheists who are paleographers agree that this is accurate and it was written this, far, this long ago. Why is that remarkable? Because, because in that Septuagint, God gives his prophecies in Isaiah and Malachi and, and all these dozens of Old Testament books. And by the first century, Jesus fulfills them. So how could God know this? How could God, or better yet, let me back up, how could anybody know this? It's the only book. It's the only holy book that does this, that gives these prophecies. Let me put this in perspective. Our country, the United States of America, is not even 300 years old yet. We're getting close. If We make it that long. If you think about how this country started, the colonial days, the technology, boy, have things changed to all the way to 2018. Again, that's less than 300 years old, right? So now we're looking at prophecies 300 to 1,000 years before they happen. How could that be possible? It's really impossible. If you take statistics and probabilities, it's off the charts. It's, it's to, the, to the improbable zone. You know, it can't happen. Only through God. Only the Bible has this. Well, let's look to see what the wise men say about the birth of Jesus. If we could jump in to Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the, where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The wise men. In Greek, because the Bible was written largely in the Koine Greek at the time, the word is magoi, which these folks were probably from the area. Now, the Romans had provinces, right? The old Persian Empire, uh, Parthia, Mesopotamia. We're actually speaking about current-day modern uh, Iran and Iraq. So they came a pretty long distance, and I'm going to get back to that. Herod, we know from history, was Herod the Great. Well, that was what the world called him. He actually was a cruel and evil man. But he had other sons, Archelaus and, you know, down the line, Antipater, etc. Um, so the Bible doesn't, is not just God's word. The Bible is also a history book. It gives details. It gives facts. If you actually go into your history books and, and compare it with the Bible, you can say, oh, yeah, these, the, these things have happened. The Caesars are also mentioned in the Bible because it triangulates perfectly the facts that took place back then. So the Magoi, or also known as an Eastern scientist, they discerned the solar system. They had a very interesting, you know, there was a lot of mystery about the Magoi or the wise men, but they basically, you could say that back then they used some astronomy, they used some astrology, they would look and see the planets and the heavenly bodies, and uh, they would make inferences from that. Okay, but you know what God did? He met them where they were at. And that's the beauty of our God. You know, wherever you're at this, this afternoon, maybe you're not fully buying it. Maybe some things that'll be said, maybe some proofs that we use will get you to think about, well, maybe this is real. Maybe this is something I should consider. Maybe one day that there is a God, and when I die, I'm going to meet him. Am I prepared? But the cool thing was he met these wise men where they were at, right? <laughs> he, I know he met me when I was in my mid to late 20s, he met me where I was at. He used other people in my life, and it was a great thing. And I know that, that he, I, I actually at some point said to myself, why do I keep running from him? Um, you know, and that's my story. But God will draw us to himself different ways. He so loved the world, John 3 tells us. The star of Bethlehem, this is actually fun because the star in the Greek is astir or asteros, depend on the conjugation of the Greek word, and we get the English word asteroid from. So a lot of people think specifically it's a ball of hot gases, but that word in the Greek can also mean heavenly body. 
right? Heavenly bodies. There's actually a program, I don't know if any of you have it, it's called Starry Night. And you can actually plug in the coordinates anywhere on the planet and any time period, and it can tell you what the night sky looked like. You can actually see it on your computer screen. Why? Because of the laws of planetary motion. Now we're talking about science. We're talking about Johannes Kepler, who got a lot of his work from Tycho Brahe and Nicholas Copernicus. If we look at image six, this is actually pretty fascinating. This is what the wise men would have seen as they looked. They were east as they looked west into the night sky. Venus and Jupiter. Jupiter, they considered the king planet. Regulus was a star. They considered it the king's star. Remember what I said about God meeting them where they were at? What they would see is that these planets were reflecting the light of the sun, and they were low in the atmosphere based on how they would view it. And because of they were both in what was called conjunction, the planets were together at that point. There's also something called retrograde motion, which means that because uh, planets, including the Earth, don't uh, revolve around the sun in a perfect circle, it's more of a flattened circle. They're called ellipses. Depending on where you are in the universe, retrograde motion can make a planet look like it's going backwards or stopping. So as we read the scripture, I'm not saying that this is definitely it, but I'm going to tell you at that point in history, and you can go back into your history books and your science books, and you can see something quite amazing was going on in the night sky. You know, people used to say, well, it was a shooting star or it was a supernova. But technology has caught up with what the Bible says, and we have more articulable ways to see what the wise men would have seen in the, in the night sky and how God brought them all those miles to actually see Jesus while he was young. It's pretty fascinating if you think about it. Um, it could have appeared at some point to literally the planet reflecting the light of the sun could have appeared to stop literally over the house where Jesus was. So God used this, this constellation to bring these men westward. Now, Herod the Great had a great fear, right? We read in the text, and again, some people will read the Bible not knowing, not knowing history, and say it's a fairy tale. The guy just was a mean king. But Herod the Great brought all of his counselors together, and there was great trouble in Jerusalem. The elites, so to speak, that were running everything. They, they started searching their uh, Old Testament. They started searching their prophets. And they confirmed to Herod, we have a problem on our hand. Because all the prophecies speak about this Christ, this Messiah to be born. As a matter of fact, there's people today, you know, a lot of these cults, they claim to be the Messiah, you know, Jim Jones and David Koresh. But if you really know your scripture, you, you wouldn't follow them. Because Jesus came at an appointed time in human history. There's time-sensitive prophecies that nobody in this time period could say, I'm the Messiah. Daniel chapter 9, Herod knew, and his, his counselors knew, his uh, religious hacks that were working for him. They did flip the pages, and they did see Daniel chapter 9. Yeah, the Messiah, is, he's, he's here. Uh, Haggai 2, 7 and 8, he's here. Uh, Genesis 49, 10, he's here. So Herod starts kind of losing his, his mind about this, and uh, the wise men don't go back to him. There's three gifts that represent the three offices that Christ holds. The gifts are for a king, for a priest, and for a prophet. There's so much into this. It's so deep. 
And I'm just picking a few things out of the scripture. So the first gift that was given to Jesus was gold. Gold represented royalty. The kings had storehouses of gold back then. You know, we do things differently with money today in the modern world. But they, next to their palaces, had storehouses that held gold and precious metals. Jesus, though, was no ordinary king. He's the king of the world. Even before he was taken to be crucified, Jesus spoke to his disciples and said that he had to come, basically, and and you see this all throughout the Gospels, he had to die for the sins of the people. But he also spoke about a a time that overshoots 2018, our future, where he's going to come and rule the planet with a rod of iron in Jerusalem, which is actually amazing. Amen. Amen. The millennial kingdom, we've been covering a lot about that in the book of Isaiah. So Jesus is a king. The second gift that was given was frankincense, which represented the priesthood. It's a funny name, (laughs) but if you look back into the Old Testament, frankincense was used in their uh, aromatic uh, poultices and, and the different things that God told them to use. It was used as incense. It was used in the offerings that the priests offered to God right? Jesus, we know, in the book of Hebrews, was the ultimate final high priest. Because when Jesus came, all the sacrifices didn't have to continue anymore. Jesus was the priest and that he, he made the offering, but he's also with the sacrifice. He held two of those offices, which is pretty amazing if you read the book of Hebrews. The last gift is myrrh. Myrrh represents the office that he held as a prophet, Myrrh was used in embalming, which is very, you talk about an inappropriate gift for a child. They gave him myrrh. Myrrh, you know, when they went, you, oh, this is myrrh. Death? Well, why are you giving, was this an old, you know, why are you doing this, right? But it's amazing because Mary and Joseph uh, were just dazzled uh, through the Gospels. They, they observed a lot of things. They didn't understand everything. But myrrh to give as a baby was an inappropriate gift unless you understood that Christ's life had to be cut short. Not because Jesus couldn't defend himself. When his followers tried to defend him, he said, this must take place. I could call down legions of angels right now. Just the way he did miracles, uh, he could have knocked down all the Roman soldiers. He willingly went to the cross because of love, because of his love for you and his love for me. So myrrh, a lot of the prophets ended up dying young, unfortunately, because a lot of the messages that they gave about truth in rotting cultures was very unpopular. So you see the three gifts. Let's look at the application of effort or devotion. Now, where did the Magioi originate? Again, somewhere between Persia and Mesopotamia. If you actually read history, we, we can know this, we can understand this. That would have meant that the wise men would have traveled because of the way the the Euphrates ran and uh, trying to avoid the barren desert wastelands, their trip would have taken somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,300 miles to get to see Christ with these gifts. must have been some entourage. Not by train, not by plane, (laughs) not by automobile, but by animal. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, God says, it's a clarion call. He says, if you seek me, you will find me if 
you search me with all your heart. This Christmas, do we make it about God or is it about something else? (laughs) When we look at the effort of the wise men going as far as they could to see what God was doing in this this new king that was going to be born, that was some effort, 1,300 miles. What is our effort and devotion to our Lord? Sometimes I hear people say, well, I prayed and nothing happened. Is that seeking the Lord with our whole heart? Right? Would we treat our relatives like that or a BFFs or somebody that's important to us? No, we would put more effort into it than that. You might have come here tonight hoping to get a corny Christmas message or see a, maybe an ugly sweater contest. I don't know. But you, you're now seeing a reflection. You're seeing a mirror. And that's what happens when we read the Scripture. When I study the Scripture, I see things about myself that might need to be changed. Or when I was coming to a Calvary Chapel, a church like this, years ago, and the pastor was reading the Word, there was a lot of people in that church. There were thousands. And you know what? I heard the message for me. Out of all those thousands of people, God was reaching me as he's reaching you this evening if you don't know the Lord. Even some get uncomfortable. They get restless when they hear the message because God is trying to do something in you and you might be fighting it. You might be thinking, well, how are my peers going to take this? How are my family going to take this? Well, you know, you have all these questions that come out, but God's trying to reach you. That's what he does. He reaches people. The last image, if we could put that up, which I think I saw this, uh, I don't know, you call them memes. (laughs) I'm I'm still getting used to the social media and stuff like that. But, I mean, this is a, a great picture. you got the wise men here, right? You've got the child being born. And then you have the cross. By all accounts, Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And again, it was on a prophetic timetable, literally to the day a lot of these things happened that he shed his blood for the remission of our sins. The sermon is titled, No Wrapping Paper Needed, and that's true. How do you dress up true love? Isn't that what everybody's searching for today, true love? Isn't that what we yearn for? Someone who's loveless, we say that they're dysfunctional. There's something wrong. We need to get them help. Because, you know, God made love. He made relationships. And we crave love. Every human being does, even though some try to suppress it. How do you dress up the true love of God for sinful flesh? What does God desire? Well, a lot of people try to work their way to heaven. They give money, they do things, they follow their religious code and all the bylaws. But to get to heaven, God made it easy. He did all the heavy lifting, so to speak. He did all the work. All we have to do is believe. And by believing, we trust in that sacrifice that he made so long ago for our sins so that we could get to heaven. Do you find that refreshing? I do. 20-something years of being saved, I still find that refreshing. This doesn't get boring. It doesn't get old. Never does. I could do this until I, I have, you know, breathe my last breath. So my question is, what are you going to do with that newfound, refreshing understanding of God's love for you? Well, you can respond like three groups did in Matthew 2. 
The first group is represented by Herod. Herod represents the world that's in rebellion against God. Let me tell you something. Our culture is polluted. Sorry, that's your happy Christmas message for this afternoon. But our culture is polluted. Turn on the TV, read the news. If you don't see the pollution, the moral decay, then you're really oblivious to things of God. Herod represents that world in rebellion against God. So he had a negative response. He had an angry response. He had a response of rage. And, the, and his counselors are telling him, this is from God. This is in the Old Testament. This is from Isaiah. This is from, and going through the things, if I can paraphrase a little bit. And he still responded with anger. Do you know that when Herod the Great died, nobody mourned for him? He was a horrible person. But he was angry with God. He was, had rage and wrath against God. You couldn't tell him anything. The second group is the religious system. To me, the religious system represents cultural Christianity. It has an indifferent response to Jesus. They know the word. They know it's in there somewhere. They're working for Herod the Great. You know, they're just compromise after compromise after compromise. I'll worship God my own way. I'll do it my own way. Instead of actually reading to see what he wants. The third group was the wise men. (laughs) No pun intended, that's why they're wise men. They did the right thing. They showed a devotion. They probably spent a lot of money. They had an entourage. They took a perilous journey to see the truth, to find the truth of God. They put effort into finding God. They engaged God and they worshiped him. That's actually quite remarkable because especially in this area in 2018, especially in New Jersey, we can become very calloused, can't we? We go out into the world, you get hurt a few times, you get jilted, somebody stabs you in the back, they're disloyal, and you start to build up. You can't see it, but it's a callousness over our hearts. We become cold. We play the game, we smile, we say the right things, but no one's going to get to my heart because that's precious to me and it's been hurt too many times. These men were dignitaries, and in front of a child... They bow down and they worship him. Try doing that in American culture. Too much pride, too much hurt, too much pain. I'm not going to lower myself to that. My question is, which one are you? Brothers and sisters, visitors, you can take any portion of the scripture That's why it's called the living word. You study it, you read it, and you make application to your own life and to my life. And I was in a church very similar to this, and I did fight it in the beginning. I did hear the things the pastor would say. I would hear the applications. And in my mind, I was calculating what that would mean for Joe DiProsimo's life. But eventually, I gave my heart to him. I stopped running. I, I opened it up. I was a cop, man. I had seen some horrible things. And I had built like layers over my heart. But God's word was able to penetrate it. He reached into my soul and said, I love you. And that meant something to me. So if there ever was a reason for the season, it's that Jesus died for your sins. He loves you. 
There's no angle. There's no catch. You know, it's not part of a religion or a denomination or even a church. It has to do with God from heaven looking down and seeing the mess that humankind has made of this earth and saying the only way this is going to get fixed is if I reach down there and I, I bring myself into their world to save them. The choice is yours this Christmas season. I think it's appropriate that I just ask if there's anybody here who'd want to give their heart to Jesus Christ, you just pray and, and we'll kind of lead you in the prayer. And if that's a reflection of your heart, you know, you repent of your ways and you turn to the living God. And you, you're not going to be perfect. I'm not perfect. But God does a work in you. You're like, he wants to mold you. So if there's anybody here who's never given their heart to Jesus, You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.